Journey to Pascha, Orthodox Spiritual Reflections on Great Lent, brought to you by the Greek Orthodox Christian Society of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of Australia. This second Sunday of Great Lent commemorates St. Gregory Balamas. In this episode, we hear from Andrew Psaromatis, chanter, translator, and member of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society on why St. Gregory Balamas is so important for the Orthodox Church. Following on from the first Sunday of Lent, the Sunday of Orthodoxy, our church on the second Sunday of Lent commemorates the person of St. Gregory Palamas. St. Gregory Palamas was an archbishop. He was the archbishop of Thessalonica when he passed away, and he was a theologian. He came from quite a privileged background. He was born in the year 1296. His father was a senator. And since he was born into such privilege, he received the type of upbringing and education that was expected. St. Gregory's father did pass away when St. Gregory was quite young. So St. Gregory Palamas grew up in the court of Emperor Andronicus Paleologos. He was educated in the classic tradition of education of that time. In other words, he studied the writings of the ancient Greeks, all manner of knowledge, the writings of Aristotle, of Plato, mathematics, physics, the study of rhetoric, the study of logic, of course, the study of grammar. And as part of that education, he also studied scriptures. St. Gregory had grown up surrounded by and inter interacting with monks and spiritual fathers. Indeed, his own father, St. Gregory's own father, was tonsured a monk on his deathbed. So at the age of 20, St. Gregory decided to leave for Mount Athol. He was ordained a priest at the age of 30 and then moved to the city of Veria in northern Greece with 10 other monks to establish a monastic hermitage. And for five years, himself, together with the monks, practiced a life of rigorous ascetic monasticism. He's most well known for his theological works. And most of them were generated as a result of a famous correspondence he entered into with a person called Barlam, who was a Greek, an ethnic Greek, who lived in Calabria on the southern tip of mainland Italy. Barlam went to Constantinople in 1338. He himself had a background in Western education, the Western education of that time. And he went to Constantinople, as did many other people who were educated in the West, to gain first-hand knowledge of the works and writings of the philosophers such as Aristotle and Plato. Barlam was nominally orthodox, but he was not quite orthodox in practice, as we shall see. Varlam was especially knowledgeable of the writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite, who wrote various theological works, such as the mystical theology, the celestial hierarchies. And unfortunately, Varlam, being educated as he was, and always searching for truth as he saw it, 
came up with their theological innovation. And the background to that innovation was that there had been a constant theological debate on the procession of the Holy Spirit for a long time in the church, but especially ever since the schism between the eastern part of the one undivided church and the western part, what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, the Great Schism, which occurred had already occurred in 1054 AD. Simply put, Varlam said, if God is unknowable, then the Western Church, the Latins, should give up their claim, their claim trying to demonstrate their doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit. And Varlam continued and said, how can someone demonstrate a reality which is outside all perception and all human reasoning. He continues, Both Latins and Greeks should be happy to refer to the fathers who had a special illumination. However, the fathers aren't all perfectly clear on the doctrine of the procession, so we should just relegate all theological debate to private opinions and don't use the differences of opinion that our churches have in regards to the procession of the Holy Spirit as an obstacle to the unity of the church. At around that same time, St. Gregory Palamas had just written a work of his called the Apodictic Treatises, and he had actually argued against the Latin doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit, that which we call the filioque. The filioque being that the Holy Spirit proceeds, as he said in the Roman Catholic version of the creed, proceeds from the Father and the Son. For Gregory Palamas, the reply to Barlaam's position was this. If God illumined the minds of the fathers of the church, why should he not reveal himself to the true theologians of his own time to elucidate the mystery of the Holy Trinity? Barlaam was against the prevalent Western thought of that time. And that thought was that there is nothing inaccessible to the human mind that we can know God and should be able to prove the way the Holy Spirit proceeds through the Trinity just using logic. But Lam argued that all we can say is that we know various things about God, but we can never really know God. So then began a whole stream of back and forth correspondence between Varlam and St. Gregory. And St. Gregory argued that Yes, God is indeed unknowable, but does he not reveal himself? Has Christ not come through becoming incarnate and granting men a super, supernatural knowledge distinct from an intellectual knowledge? In other words, just knowing about God with the mind. Barlam was convinced of his own stance, of course. And he shared for a while the life of the monks that practiced silent prayer or hesychasm at Thessalonica and Constantinople, just to see where his opponents on the other side of the theological debate were coming from. And Balaam came into contact with holy men who through ascesis and prayer and the life of the church had become holy and had visions of the holy light. Balaam reacted strongly against this assertion. He denied 
all actions of divine grace on human reasoning and especially on the human body. Balaam denied that there was any union with God possible between man, between humans and God. And here we have a clash between two views of what man is. Is man only an intelligence who is trapped inside his body, who can only understand things through his senses, his five physical senses, or is man more than that? Is man a union of both body and soul to whom God directly brings salvation through becoming incarnate? In St. Gregory of Palamas, we have the view of a human being as that view which was written and lived by the Holy Fathers of our Church all the way back to the first millennium of the Church. And the basic crux of, of this is that the spiritual life cannot be divorced from the material life. We live one life which is transformed body and soul, heart and mind, by the grace of God, which is uncreated. Balaam would say things that, for example, that there was a commonality between the ancient Greek philosophers and the fathers of the church, that they all understood that the God who is beyond essence and beyond name transcends mind, knowledge and every other achievement. However, in opposition to this, St. Gregory Palamas insisted that there was a knowledge common to all those who have believed in Christ beyond all thought. What all believers shared was not simply an intellectual knowledge, a thought that entered the brain, but it was actually union. It was enosis. Balang would argue that God is unknowable because of man's finiteness, whereas St. Gregory Palamas argued that theology must be apophatic, in other words, negative, because God is so transcendent, God is even beyond his own transcendence. However, in saying this, St. Gregory argued that God does not only transcend those thoughts and concepts that you could possibly say about him, in other words, that God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-holy, etc., but that God also transcends everything that you cannot say about him. According to St. Gregory Palamas, God is not just unknowable, he is also beyond unknowable. In, in Greek, hyperagnostos. According to St. Gregory, when we pray and contemplate on God, the goal is the vision of God, not according to his essence, no one can see God and live, as is stated in the Old Testament. But the goal is the true contemplation of God. When the saints of our church, even recent saints, saints like St. Saint Paisios, St. Porfirios, etc., when they talk to us and impart to us, even St. Sophronios of Essex, when they write about and talk to us and describe to us, which is beyond the vocabulary of any sort of theologizing about what God is or what God is not. So, if God cannot be seen or partaken of in his essence, then what is this light 
that the first mystics and monks and elders and saints throughout all of the ages of the church. What is this light that they are talking about? What is this light that the disciples, the three disciples of Christ, saw on Mount Tabor when he was transfigured? St. Gregory explains that it was not the essence of God, the usia, which according to the Bible no one had ever seen. And it was not an illusion, for the evangelist writes clearly, his clothes became as white as the light. So if this light did not belong to either of the natures of Christ, his human nature and his divine nature, then we would have to say that that light belonged and was in itself a third reality, which could only mean that Christ had three natures. And that is wrong. That is heretical. And so, since it was not part of the human nature that Christ shared with other men, because men, human beings, do not naturally give off of that light, then that light which, which the disciples saw and perceived on Mount Tabor during Christ's transfiguration, that light belonged to Christ's divine nature. And therefore, since God himself is uncreated, God has not been created, he is before all creation, then that very light which the disciples saw therefore must also be uncreated. The light is not a symbol or a sign of God. It is the energy of God. It illumines, it shines, it reveals. It is the light of God the Father, the light of the Logos, the Word of God. It is the light of the Holy Spirit. And this is what gives particular meaning and explanation to the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To see God is not just something that is done as an intellectual exercise. It is not just to see a symbol of who God is or what God is, or any other sort of interpretation or any other sort of metaphor that we can use. We see the divine reality through the divine energies of God. Therefore, the gift that God gives to us is not of his own essence, because then we would all be gods. But the gift, what we commonly call grace, thea charis, divine grace, this gift is God's energy. So in his essence, God remains beyond participation and beyond vision, even for the most holy of saints. Yet that which the saints saw and continue to see to this day, that which they participated in was not a symbol of God, but God's energies. A true theologian is not an academic or a scholar per se, but one who lives in an orthodox manner.
We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the Journey to Basca podcast. Please be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening platform and check out the Greek Orthodox Christian Society YouTube channel, our website at lichnos.org. That's L-Y-C-H-N-O-S dot O-R-G. And our Orthodox Journey Facebook and Instagram sites for even more Orthodox spiritual content.